1: Hello and welcome to the Week podcast. Today I'm with financier and environmentalist Ben Goldsmith. Now Ben was a DEFRA non-executive board member from 2018 to 2022 and he's chair of the Conservative Environment Network. His new book is titled God is an Octopus, Loss, Love and a Calling to Nature, of which more later. But firstly, welcome Ben.
0: Matt, thank you very much for having me on. I'm very grateful.
1: Well, it's great to have you on. Now, I met some of your um, Conservative Environment Network colleagues at a parliamentary horticulture event recently. And uh, obviously, there's an election next year, probably, and um, horticulture is kind of on the agenda. Um, there's a lot of um, inquiries going on. There's a Lord's Inquiry. There's lots of food and labour reports floating around. Um, and um, you were at DEFRA for five years advocating you know, Elms and uh, Nature for Climate Fund and Species Reintroduction Task Force. So do you think the government really is interested in, in environment and, and horticulture? And do all these inquiries mean anything? Do the reports do anything good with government?
0: Well, look, stepping back first, um, f- for some reason, which I, I can't fully articulate, um, it has become fashionable for conservatives around the world to to make as if they don't give a damn about nature, they don't believe the science of climate change. It's it's almost a badge of honor if you're a conservative in the United States or in Brazil or Australia to to denigrate efforts to restore our natural environment. Um, and I, 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 it's a relatively new phenomenon because, of course, um, conservatives were often defined by their desire to protect the things that really matter, um, to act as good stewards, to 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 build resilience, which of course is what nature gives us. Um, in, in, into the places over which they have power um, to, to, to express a kind of responsibility towards future generations. They think of Theodore Roosevelt, the national parks in the United States. I think of Nixon who created the Environmental Protection Agency and it was under Nixon that the Clean Air Act happened, the Clean Water Act. It was Thatcher and Reagan that bashed world leaders' heads together and created the Montreal Protocol and and fundamentally fixed the ozone problem. So, So conservatives don't have to be imbecilic on nature and the environment, and yet it's become fashionable for some reason for them to be so. And that's why in 2010 a group of us decided to set up the Conservative Environment Network to create really a home for those people broadly defined who consider themselves conservative, small c and who also care passionately that that we need to set our minds um to 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 fixing nature and and the climate. And it, and it's been really successful. We had a bunch of um, wins. We, we built a caucus. Today, the caucus has 150 Conservative MPs in it. Similarly, we've got a caucus in the House of Lords. We've got um, uh, six or seven hundred councillors, and we've got a big grassroots network. And so, we represent quite a powerful movement within the Conservative Party here in, in 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 the United Kingdom. We're not formally affiliated with the Conservative Party. We are an NGO, but we have the effect of being able to make change happen within. Um, and and for example, we brought about working in coalition with a bunch of other environment NGOs, the Blue Belt, which was the creation of millions of square kilometers of new marine protected areas and no take zones around the UK overseas territories, places like Ascension Island and St. Helena and Pitcairn. It's the biggest network of marine protected areas in the world that, that the UK has created. Uh, we also got the government to to commit to an early phase out of coal. Instead of 2035, it's happened already. Um, So it's it's been successful. And of course, we had a flurry of victories in the last four or five years, particularly under Boris Johnson. Uh, The Environment Act 2021 is a pretty comprehensive piece of legislation. I'd say it's among the best of its kind in the OECD nations, and it's got ratcheting targets that get harder and harder over time. So that should have um, some really strong impacts on a range of different areas from species reintroductions to to single-use plastics. I think the Agriculture Act, which which directly links all rural payments and farm subsidies to stewardship and restoration of soil and nature, it's a massive win for nature. That I'm not sure either the farming industry, the government, or in fact the nature restoration community fully grasped what a big deal it was when it happened, and now it's happening. And there's obviously debates on Dartmoor and other places about its rollout. So lots of good stuff has happened. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that outwardly it would appear the government has somewhat lost interest in these issues during the last couple of years. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's really what we created the Conservative Environment Network for, to make sure these issues don't slip down the agenda and to defend the wins we've had and to fight for new ones. And last thing I'd say on this is it, it's becoming very clear that the environment, big aspects of it, are becoming a significant electoral issue pollution in our rivers by livestock slurry and and, and by sewage pumped out by the water companies were a material issue in the local elections in May. And poll after poll shows that doesn't matter whether you are uh, young or old, rural or urban, left-leaning or right-leaning, you want to see environmental action. You want to see nature recovery. There's a clamor that is, I don't think, going away. So any politician of any party that denigrates these issues or pushes them down the list of priorities, I think is being foolhardy just from a political strategy perspective.
1: No, no, that's good stuff. Now, your brother Zach recently resigned because of government apathy towards the environment. He resigned from the government. So um, that's not great, is it?
0: Yeah. So my brother Zach has been a lifelong nature lover and and gardener. The two of us grew up um, in, in, we were lucky enough to grow up in a big garden in Richmond belonging to my mum. And we were always helping out with the vegetable garden. I've still got some of the letters I sent to my brother at boarding school, which was a fate that I managed to avoid and uh, and they were all those letters were about how the carrots and the potatoes were doing and then i'd think of something after i'd sealed the envelope and i'd say on the back ps you know the peas are not doing so well for some reason and so we grew up gardening we grew up putting up bird boxes trying to build ponds which didn't work very well on the sandy soils of west london and going out into the common land of ham common and onto richmond park to look for wildlife at dawn he's he's a lifelong nature lover and so having him as environment minister during the last four years, I think it's been an amazing thing. And he's worked his socks off to do good stuff. His focus has been overseas, not domestic. So he's been focused on using British development funding and British diplomatic muscle to help protect rainforests and restore ecosystems in the developing world, mangroves and coastal salt marshes. And the UK's funding a thing called the Connected Landscapes Program, which is supporting corridors for elephants in Africa and human wildlife conflict and so on. And I think he just felt it was getting harder and harder to get stuff done. And partly that's a result of the increasing financial constraints on government. And undoubtedly, it's partly because nature and the environment have slid somewhat down the political agenda for the current um, set of ministers. I don't know why that is, um, but it's a shame.
1: You mentioned future wins for the Conservative Environment Network. What are your priorities?
0: I think the the number one ask is to make a success of the environmental land management scheme. You know, in England, 75% of the land is farmed, including our national parks. And yet we have signed up to 30 by 30 pledge alongside nearly all of the nations of the world, which promises to restore 30% of our land and 30% of our sea to good, healthy, natural condition by 2030. If we're not going to do that in our national parks, where and how are we going to do it? And of course, we have to do it. There are also now provisions within the Environment Act that legally bind us into restoring nature. And yet nature is not currently recovering. In fact, the indicators continue to get worse year in, year out. And it's particularly bad within our national parks. Natural England in Dartmoor have handed out during the last 10 years 200 million pounds to farmers ostensibly in exchange for nature recovery and yet across every indicator in dartmoor nature has got worse so the new environmental land management scheme offers us a chance to keep people in the land because farmers in these remote landscapes they're the, they're really the soul and the backbone of those communities that they're, they're, they're vital to the economic prosperity as well of these remoter parts of our country but they're also vital to ecological recovery because in our remote landscapes the outcome we want more trees, more scrub, more wildflowers in mosaic wood pastures that are rich in wildlife, rich in colour, rich in birdsong of the kind that once stretched across great swathes of our country. And the key to getting those kinds of landscapes back is to have low numbers of extensively grazed native cattle. So we need the farmers in these landscapes. We need their livestock, but we just need far fewer sheep and we need more of the kinds of traditional cattle that used to be there. And the way to do all that is to provide them with incentives. And they're already deriving 80, 90% of their total revenue from taxpayer handouts under the old schemes. So it's not as if these aren't quasi-public service businesses anyway, farming businesses in our national parks. So all we need to do is adjust the incentives so that they adjust their farming methods back to a gentler, more nature-friendly way of farming, preferably with cattle, not sheep. So I think that's the totemic battle, is restoring vibrant nature in our protected landscapes and our other less agriculturally uh, productive places by making sure that the environmental land management scheme is a success. And I think it probably needs to be more generous. So so I would say that our number one manifesto ask is stick with it, make it work, and double the budget and 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 lean into the more ambitious end of the environmental land management scheme. The bit that talks about restoring nature in our national parks and our protected landscapes, the places where incidentally it's hardest to make a living just through out and out farming. I think that that's my biggest ask. And just by way of comparison, we spend 20 billion pounds a year maintaining the roads in this country. So the idea that we can't spend 3 or 4 billion on 75% of our land surface Land from which we want clean air, we want clean water, we want protection from flooding, we want biodiversity recovery, we want public access and amenity and, 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 and good health outcomes and good well-being and, 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 and spiritual enrichment for people. We want food. If you think of all the things we want from the land, it doesn't seem much to us that we pay the land stewards, in other words, the farmers properly for delivering all that for us.
1: No, no, it's. Uh, I mean, it's inter- interesting you talk about manifestos because we haven't really seen much signs of what people, what the parties might put in them. You know, talking to to Labour, they say they're holding off because they don't want the Conservatives to steal their policies. Um, you know, that's that's the big question now: what is going to be in the manifesto? So, what do you think might be in the Conservative manifesto linked to the environment?
0: I mean, I've I've got no better idea than you so far. Um, I, I just know that both of the major parties currently haven't said much on nature, which is odd given that millions and millions of voters are members of the nature organisations, the National Trust, the RSPB, the Wildlife Trust. You know, we feed the birds, we, we love Attenborough. It was a, blockbuster series the Attenborough wild isles series There is a growing clamor for greater connection with nature and greater efforts to restore nature it's a growing understanding that nature in our country is terribly depleted so this seems to me an open goal you know DEFRA should be a good news factory for government you know they it, it should be announcing all kinds of exciting things around restoring nature in our national parks and beyond reintroducing species and so on and and so the reticence is beyond me I, I don't understand why the major parties are not are not um, cashing in on this this, this, this public interest in nature. Um, and I sort of hope they will. The Labour Party now has its own equivalent of the Conservative Environment Network called the Labour Climate and Environment Forum. And um, we will see if they're successful um, in, in pushing Labour ministers, Labour shadow ministers to come up with something exciting on nature. But um, so far, there isn't much, is there?
1: There isn't. We're watching this space, but um, um, should be any time. Well, I don't know. In a few months' time, probably, but just moving on i 'd like to talk about your book, God is an octopus now it 's the inspiring story of finding comfort and strength in nature after suffering the loss of your daughter. So can you tell me about how nature helped you you know in your grief
0: yeah i mean the, the um anyone listening who 's lost someone close to them and especially a child will will know that all encompassing darkness that engulfs you, you know, a, a kind of darkness that, as I hadn't experienced previously, a darkness, that, you don't know how you, you know, you'll survive. And, um, but of course you have to survive. I had, I had other children. I have, you know, I have a, you know a young wife. I've got, I've got people who need me, love me, you know, I've got things to do. And, you know, uh, shutting down shop and disappearing into the darkness was not an option. I knew that from very early on. And so um what I found is that the first shards of light that penetrated that darkness and made me feel okay were always associated with nature. Just being outside in nature could have been something as simple as having a cup of tea on a sunny morning in the days after the accident in which I lost my daughter Iris. You know, listening to the bird song and just feeling for a moment okay. And and we there's a there's a bend in the river at the bottom of our valley where um, there was a kind of area for swimming, and you know, I found myself ten times a day immersing myself in that water. I, I, I was sort of amazed to pop out of the water each time, and 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 to see the rays of sunshine kind of pouring through the foliage of the trees above the river, and 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 noticing the kind of thrumming and humming of life all around me—the dragonflies, the butterflies, the house martins and swallows skimming the water—and thinking, "Gosh, the world really is beautiful." Having thought that I would never find beauty or joy in anything ever again. And it struck me that I it, it, it was more than just a stamp collector finding solace in his stamps. I, it, it was more than that. I felt held by, by by nature in a way that I really needed at that time. And I realised that, that my love and fascination for wildlife and nature through my childhood and through my life hadn't been just a kind of intellectual interest. They, they'd been much more of a calling and much more of a, a yearning. And I, I, I think this is apparent to, to millions of people how much we, we need nature on a visceral level. Just think back to the lockdowns and people searched for kind of healing and solace during what was a difficult time for so many people. And they did that by going into their local parks, by looking for scraps of, of of rough ground by the railway or places where there were wildflowers or birdsong. And and I think this, is, um, this period of lockdown in 2020 is one of the reasons why we've had this great kind of upwelling of love for nature that we've seen in this country in, in the last couple of years we really need it and 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 part of the reason why we need it is starting to reveal itself in science you know we now know that trees and plants release compounds that when we breathe them in um lower our blood pressure they lower our heart rate they just make us feel better you know we, we don't know why we don't understand why the trees need to have this effect on us but they do anyone who practices gardening will know that you just feel better when you spend time with your hands in the earth and you're surrounded by plants listening to birdsong just feel good we we really need nature and 80 percent of the world's remaining intact ecosystems are in the stewardship of indigenous people and that's no accident that's no coincidence it's because indigenous societies that remain in the world are, are absolutely and totally connected with nature in a spiritual sense and in a practical sense in everything that they do to them the idea of trashing nature or removing themselves from nature is completely anathema and I think Terence McKenna once wrote that the world's indigenous people represent humanity's last best hope. You know, we need to find a way to reinsert ourselves back into the miracle of nature because we need it in order to survive. And that became very clear to me during, during the the darkest year of my life. And so I I wrote a book about that year of magical thinking, if you like about solace in nature and solace in rewilding nature. (laughs) Talking of rewilding, what,
1: what does the term rewilding mean to you?
0: I'd say I have a much broader definition than others. I'd say it really means restoring to the maximum extent that is appropriate or possible in a particular place, natural processes so that nature can um, begin to function in, 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 in the way that it's meant to. It, it means relinquishing control. Now, we're real control freaks in this country. We tidy everything up, we create straight lines, we use chemicals and, and, and other weapons to try and keep nature out of our gardens. We've straightened and dredged every stream and creek and small river in the countryside. We've drained the wetlands. It's all about control. And when natural processes do reappear, for example, a wild boar rootling the woodland edge, you know, creating a nice seed bed in which for annual wildflowers to germinate, or beavers creating dams along a stretch of a stream or a creek, which then fill with water and become a kind of sun dappled uh, um, kind of wet woodland ecosystem. You know, we panic. What the hell is going on here? This wasn't done by us. We didn't sanction this. We have this idea that that nature is chaos and that we have to bring order to every square inch of it. And we've lost sight of the the idea that, in fact, nature is order and we are the chaos. You know the 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 wild boar is the gardener of the woodland, and uh, and without their rootling, we've lost huge numbers of wildflower species, and not not just wildflowers, trees. We've lost black poplar, we've lost European aspen, largely from our landscapes because they rely upon the rootling of wild boar to germinate. You know, without beavers, we have a very volatile hydrological system with flash flooding in the winter and then hose pipe bands and drought in the summer. You know, we need natural processes in order to, to, to in order for our own civilization to function well. So i think um I think for me, rewilding is about restoring natural processes now, if you're in a London park or a suburban garden, that might just mean having some some dead wood you know in which for invertebrates to make a home or hedgehogs, some scrub for for birds and other wildlife, native scrub, and maybe some water a little pond, and allowing the natural processes to recover at that level if you've got you know if you' part of an organization that has tens of thousands of acres in the highlands of scotland then i think it's about restoring natural processes to a much greater degree because it's possible bringing back larger species herbivores carnivores and so on but i think anywhere on that spectrum can be defined as rewilding right down to a window box on the 33rd floor of an inner city tower
1: it's interesting there's been criticism of rewilding across the spectrum though from you know the likes of Alan Titchmarsh talking about how gardening and rewilding don't really match up, and say the n f u talking about rewilding's impact on on food production so what do you make of that criticism
0: The criticism of rewilding falls really into two categories: one is food security, you know this idea that if we rewild some of our land um we will um we will starve or those that don't starve will be eaten by beavers or whatever it is you know I, I that's a ludicrous argument in my opinion on the basis that 85% of the food we produce comes from just 20% of the land mostly in the east no one is suggesting rewilding that land yes people are su- suggesting farming it in a way that protects soil and pollinating insects and watercourses you know sensible sustainable or regenerative farming but no one is suggesting rewilding in those places meanwhile the least productive quarter of our land barely makes a dent on food production basically the national parks. One, two percent of total food production comes from, from that land. You know, great swathes of our country are simply not suitable for productive farming. And when you take into account the winter feed that needs growing elsewhere and bringing into those landscapes each year, or you take into account the hydrological impact of overgrazing in our hills, which causes this flash flooding and then drought on, on more productive farmland downstream, you can make the argument that farming in these places is net negative in terms of food production. So the idea that um, de-intensifying and reducing the volume of food produced in our less productive landscapes has any bearing on food productivity whatsoever is complete nonsense. So I, I don't buy that argument at all. If they were concerned with food security, you know, they'd talk about food waste. You know, 50% of the food we produce ends up in the bin between farm and fork. You know, or the fact that we use hundreds of thousands of acres of our most productive land To grow food for machines, not people, bioenergy and biofuels. These are the things we talk about if we're interested in food security, not rewilding. In my opinion, rewilding is essential to our long-term food security because it's the wilder landscapes that create the conditions in which we can grow food elsewhere, pollinating insects being a key one. Um, In in terms of the cultural impact, well, no one is suggesting clearing people from the land. No one's trying to create Alaska in our remoter landscapes. We know that native cattle and their wild predecessors, the aurochs, are an essential ecosystem engineer. They're a keystone species. So if we need the cattle to produce the outcomes we want, we need the farmer. And the farmer, of course, is the soul and the backbone, as I said, of of these communities in these landscapes. So, So really, it's about incentivizing farmers to tweak the way they farm to move back to a gentler, more traditional way of farming, using cattle instead of sheep. And we will then have the wilder outcomes that we want in our national parks. The farmer is central to the story. And Rewilding Britain produced a report 18 months ago that analysed the roughly 300,000 acres of land in England that's being rewilded in this way. And they found a doubling of farm jobs on average per acre. And they found 10 times more volunteer participation in these places than was the case previously. So rewilding is about bringing people back into the landscape, not the opposite. Um, and as for gardens, sorry, the Alan Titchmarsh argument about rewilding in gardens, Well, it depends what definition you take. I mean, no one, again, is suggesting just abandoning the gardens. I think a wilder garden, to my, to my mind, involves just as much time spent tinkering. Now, I'm endlessly tinkering in my garden, but I just tend to use native species, you know, beautiful flowering hawthorn or crab apple instead of some exotic number that's come from halfway around the world and doesn't support nearly as many species of invertebrates or birds or, or other wildlife than, than our native species do. Um, it involves not being such a tidy freak but letting stuff pile up in the corner and habitat for grass snakes and bugs and so on. It just it just involves allowing the minutiae of natural processes and patterns to appear in our own personal space And I think that's very rewarding and and, and it doesn't mean leaving the garden completely to its own devices. You
1: have been quite critical of sort of conventional gardening. In the Financial Times recently, you wrote anything which makes it more difficult to import naff, exotic flowers and other plants into Britain is good news. There's plenty to buy in garden centres, well, without the imported potted plants, which offer nothing to wildlife. Look like something from the 1980s. Often spread beyond the garden in which they're planted, and sometimes bring parasites or disease. That's pretty hard hitting stuff. I know. So, uh... Well, look, I don't know whether you ever
0: look at those 1980s kind of TV shows, and you see the outfits they wore, and you think, "My God, how did they do that?" Well, I sometimes look at manicured gardens, and I think this is really outdated stuff. You know, on the basis that taking um, you know, particular species of flowers that come from. Sp- miles away from South Africa or from China. You know, importing them, I think, is is certainly an issue. We, you know, we, we know that it's a pretty good way of spreading pathogens. And of course, our countryside is riddled with species that were brought in for cosmetic reasons and which have now spread. The rhododendron ponticum was very popular in Victorian gardens. Japanese knotweed was brought here as a decorative. Himalayan balsam, now, these are species which are having a devastating impact in the landscape. And they were brought here by gardeners who wanted to spice up their gardens with something exotic so there's a risk associated with bringing exotic plants in both a pathogenic risk and the risk of spreading invasive species into the landscape but there's also to my mind you know for the most part just something a bit naff about rows of exotic plants that look like a kind of pastiche of real nature now, if you walk along you know a, a kind of beaver wetland which is just awash with colour purple loosestrife and marsh marigold and and all the other colours of kind of wetland wildflower meadow that that beavers bring the complexity and the beauty of that is just unrivaled by anything that we can create by planting things in a kind of neat little series of rows with bare earth between them. So I, I think sometimes, you know, an over manicured garden comprised of exotic species can look like a roundabout that's been decorated by a council somewhere in the London suburbs. And, I, and I, I'm much more in favour of, of um Using native vegetation and having um you know a little bit more of a self willed approach in terms of garden management. But that doesn't mean less involvement. There are still lovely paths to be mown and there's still um, you know c- cutting at certain times of year in order to get the best outcome the following year. And there are still ponds to be dug and garden gnomes to be positioned and garden furniture and pruning and trimming and wildlife piles to make and bug hotels and bird boxes. And there's so much you can do in a wildlife friendly garden. And I I, I think the, the if you've got lots of posh houses, they often have a wild garden in inverted commas. Which is often sort of part orchard, part wildflower meadow, usually close to the house. And it's usually a section, just like the knot garden or the kitchen garden. And it's often the most beautiful part of that whole enterprise. And it's often the place in which you find the most bugs and the most butterflies and the most birds. And I was always drawn to the wild garden in in my mother's Victorian garden in Richmond. And I always wanted the whole thing to be a wild garden when I was a child. So I I am a little judgmental on this. And of course, there's no. it's probably I- I'm generalising, of course, and I'm being provocative. You know, th- there are no right answers.
1: No, well, I certainly get our audience talking and thinking. Hopefully, but um, just going on to our final question, you, t- you talked about some of the sort of environments and and parts of nature you love. But is there a particular plant which is your favourite? One one which you'd take to a-, a desert island?
0: I mean, the plant that I love most. And there's so many plants that I love, but I particularly love hawthorn. The Hawthorns here at my place in Somerset produce such a vivid and vibrant white blossom in the spring that it really does herald an exciting time of year. And the the the, the blossom is just heaving with the first buzzing insects and pollinators of the season. And then, of course, um, come the autumn, they're a vivid red with berries and those berries last deep into the winter. So that are often thrushes and blackbirds and other um, songbirds that, that, that are in the hawthorn during the winter. And the little hawthorn growing up in the fields provide cover for other species that grow through them. I think it was Chaucer that wrote that the, the mother of every oak is the thorn bush. Well, pockets of hawthorn scrub not only provide um, protection for songbirds to build their nests, but they also provide protection for little oak saplings and other trees to grow up out of the reach of. Uh, grazing and browsing mouths of deer or cows. So it strikes me that the hawthorn is both very useful to lots of species, but also very beautiful and very uplifting. So my choice is the hawthorn.
1: Brilliant. Great choice, Ben, a British native. And um, thanks very much to Ben Goldsmith, the environmentalist. And I'm Matthew Appleby, the Hort Week editor. And this has been the Hawk Week podcast. And make sure you never miss a Hawk Week podcast. Subscribe to or follow Hot Week podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts, or your preferred podcast platform. And once again, thanks to Ben Goldsmith and goodbye until next time.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.